please give a warm welcome to the house band, the modern day robber barons of love. Welcome to the grind. Kind of like an oral tradition. The most important advancements in chocolate covered bacon. Come from different backgrounds in different places and I think it's awesome. I think it's a great idea. I'm drinking coffee right now, so... It's because you're a champ. Welcome to the grind. Keyboard cat and galactic pumas everywhere. <laughs> I'm going to go with the French... Mr. David Staff. Hello, hello. Mr. Daniel Hugo. Hello. New Glad friend. <laughs> Welcome. Um, so it's been a crazy week. How are you guys doing? I'm hanging in there. You're hanging in there. <laughs> I'm hanging in. I uh, yeah, I've had some mood swings this past week. It's been a it's been an interesting week. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I should probably mention that today is Tuesday, November fifteenth, twenty sixteen. Uh, exactly one week after our new president elect, Donald Trump, was voted into office. It's, it's uh, big news. <laughs> big news story. <laughs> All right. I'm uh, I'm I'm frightened. You're by, frightened by the prospect. Okay. That's how I feel about it. Sure. Well, I did invite you guys here because you have uh, opposing perspectives on this news, right? So now uh, David has let you know, Geek, <laughs> where he's at. Well, he's firmly in Camp Hillary. And uh, Daniel, how about, how about yourself? Would have been a very boring conversation if we had the same perspective and we're just repeating each other. Um, Fair enough. But, uh, no, I've, I'm a supporter of... Mr. Trump's candidacy, and I thought that he would win, and he did. So, well, I should have bet on you, man. <laughs> yeah, I think before we get started, it'd, it'd be interesting yes. to kind of hear the background. Um, Dan is, you know, Dan and I graduated from law school together. I and no, no bragging. I think he's one of the smarter guys that came out of the school very bright. So about four months ago, whenever the Trump, whenever tr I think Trump won the primaries, Dan and I. Uh, were debating and he was insistent that he believed Donald Trump would win and this was at a time when everyone was laughing at Donald Trump you know making fun of him four months ago so he defended his case there was one one night we were at a bar and it was five intelligent people four were arguing both for the policies of Hillary Clinton and that Hillary Clinton would win and Hugo, my friend, um, debated four on one and kind of left the table speechless. And this happened. And all five people were, were attorneys at this point. Um, I'm not sure that helps your case, but proceed. <laughs> but he took an extremely unpopular position and was the obviously in Hawaii a minority. Dan and I bet $100 about who would win the election. Um, and then whatever the sexual allegations against Trump came out, I think in October, I gave him an opportunity to let that go. I said, you know what, don't worry about the bet. It's pretty clear. It's over. And he doubled down on me. So we went to 200 uh, and Trump won. So what I'm most interested to hear, at least from Dan, and you know, we can talk about later what the... I, I wasn't a huge Clinton supporter, but I think Dan's got some very good points and some interesting things on why he thinks it's actually a good idea that Trump won other than Hillary. So we can kind of start with that. Okay. And uh, let me lay my own foundation, mm -hmm. uh, all cards on the table. I'm 100% relieved that Hillary Clinton lost. 
I think she would have been a terrible president. I'm also horrified <laughs> that Donald Trump is uh, the president-elect. I don't know what to expect, except for probably a lot of bad things. So, uh, I'm conflicted. I thought third party was a, the best choice, and uh, a lot of people tell me that's a waste of uh, thought and vote, but uh, I don't care. And I think that's abundantly clear with the system we have in place. But, so my bias is now on the table. And yeah, opening question to Daniel. <laughs> uh, Trump is now president-elect. Why did you support candidate Trump? Right, and that's separate from the question of him actually winning. Yes, let's be clear about that. So. Right, so I tend to be a fairly single-issue voter. My okay. issue is foreign policy, because I think that's the realm where the president has the most uh, freedom of action. So Congress, uh, the Supreme Court can hem in the executive on a lot of things, but foreign policy, there's a strong tradition of deference. And I thought that the most important foreign policy question, and it's been this way my entire voting life, has been U.S.-Russia relations. Um, I have a d disagreement with the American establishment opinion on um, post-Soviet relations. I think that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the U.S. made some pretty significant foreign policy mistakes that have antagonized Russia. Um, and so my two votes for Barack Obama were because the Republican candidate in that case took a more hostile position to Russia. In this case, it was different. The Republican candidate actually, I thought, had some quite sensible things to say. What did he say that you supported? Well, there are two points. The first... Um, the two real flashpoints for the U.S. are Syria and Ukraine. Um, in both those cases, my view is that uh, Russia has vital interests that are implicated there. Uh, the United States really doesn't. Um, there are two things that Russia historically needs. It needs a secure western border, and it needs a, uh, access to a warm water port. Um, so in Ukraine, both of those issues came up. Russia doesn't need to have to occupy Ukraine, but it doesn't even really need to have a friendly government in Ukraine, but it does need to have a neutral government. And since uh, 1990, the 1990s, uh, the United States has increasingly been moving eastward towards Russia. The Russians see this, they've seen this movie before. It usually ends with German troops outside of Moscow. Um, so from their perspective, that's a very serious uh, national security issue. Now, I think that for the United States, it wasn't so much a malicious move. It was sort of just absent-minded idealism, right? The new nations of Eastern Europe want to move into the Western orbit. The United States is happy with that. Um, but from the Russian perspective, it becomes a matter of, of national security. Okay. And I, I just don't think that Americans are want, would want to have a shooting war over Ukraine, but and, the Russians might. And let me just kind of, we can talk about what worries me about Trump and the things I liked about Clinton. I was a Clinton voter, but having Trump won and then Dan's made this argument before four months ago we just kind of laughed at him um, 
I don't think a lot of people or a lot of voters, at least in Hawaii, are friends who are educated. One, we just really weren't even aware that there was people knew about Syria and maybe a no-fly zone. These were words kind of buzzing in our heads, but we didn't know much more than that, right? So after Trump won, I started thinking more about what what Daniel just said and was doing a little bit of research. And it's interesting because Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, has said multiple, she said multiple times, even though she was running against Hillary, but um, multiple times in different venues basically said, Hillary Clinton, basically she said we were on the brink of nuclear war if Hillary Clinton got elected. And she wasn't kidding, because what she was saying was, Russians have a no-fly zone over Syria. Or excuse me, Russians have fighter planes over Syria right now, Mm -hmm. and we want to impose a no-fly zone. Which basically means we have to move our jets in and move them out. Um, There's videotape, there's YouTube videos of generals basically saying, you want to like basically questioning that right like you want to do and you want to have essentially made pot escalate up the possibility of an air war with the russians and so the green party candidate if you look on the internet has said multiple times we're closer to nuclear war with russia right now than maybe we've ever been and we're going to be even closer with clinton than we are with trump and trump's been very and, you know, we, we, of course, know that Trump Trump's trying to kind of thaw relationships with Putin. So there's something really interesting going on here, because when you look at kind of from the national security apparatus, it seems like Trump's at odds with some of the prominent national security experts. And I think part of the reason is because he wants a better relationship with Russia. But then you've got the Green Party candidate saying that Hillary was so hawkish that we were in danger, actually, of really getting some serious escalation. So... The point is, everything Dan said, other people were saying too. It just wasn't being spoken very loudly. Okay. Uh, My question then, since you guys appear to agree (laughs) now, (laughs) um, is it not weird to cast your vote for the President of the United States based on the single foreign policy issue of what might happen with Russia? Like, there's so many other things (laughs) that are wrapped up in the one job that you've kind of picked not only just foreign policy as the one plank, right. but then within foreign policy, a single country to focus on. And it's weird to say or to expect that we would care about what Russia's interests are, not even in their own government, but like what governments they choose to have surrounding them on their immediate borders. Well, first, I'll let you answer that. But first of all, I, I just want to say that um, that was kind of after the fact me doing research after Trump won and then thinking about what Daniel said. We can talk about later why sure. or I think Trump feels, but anyways, go on. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that voters can choose just about any reason up to and including I like this candidate's teeth more. <laughs> and that, Fair enough. <laughs> and that those are, those are valid, valid reasons because we don't ask voters to submit their reasons. We just ask right. them to submit their choice. But for me, the reason why I choose um, this is because I think that on most other things, if I oppose the president, I can lobby through Congress. I can, you know, there are ways that you can check them at the state legislature. Um, but there, there's not much that the ordinary citizen can do. Mm-hmm. And um, the consequences of it would be so massive. But I mean, for the most part, my one vote will not actually change that outcome. So for me, it's more just a chance to think through 
those sort of issues that I normally wouldn't. Okay. I did think it was interesting that all over the uh, news leading up to the election day, that one of the stories is, oh, Trump is going to be close to Putin. Trump loves this guy Putin. We don't, we, speaking for all of us, don't like him. And then it's like, wait, 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 wait. Detente with Russia is a good thing. Like, we want to de-escalate. Now, at what cost, right? Do we give them a country? What if they want to just take over Latvia? Right. Versus, you know, are they okay with the governments that happen to surround them? Right. Um, I don't think that saying that we should have better relations with Russia would necessarily mean letting Russia have a free hand. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the problems that I had with Hillary Clinton's candidacy is that there was a lot of tough talk, but there wasn't much behind that. There's a good case to be made that we should um, take a stronger posture against Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, But there haven't been the sort of military commitments that we would need. For example, um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are all in NATO, Mm -hmm. but there's nowhere near the... So we have treaty obligations to them, but there's nowhere near the defense commitment to those states. If the Russians decided to invade, we couldn't actually do anything about it. We would have no way of keeping that military commitment because um, we don't have the air defenses, we don't have the ground forces in the area, and that would be a catastrophe for our foreign policy if we said we'll defend you the Russians call our bluff and then we don't do anything about it so what does President Trump do in that situation well so I thought that there was something quite devious and clever that he did which was making this squawk about them not paying enough for defense spending Um, and it's true Uh, Latvia for example spends about 1% of its GDP on defense under um, their under the NATO agreements they're supposed to spend 2% which is already a small amount but they aren't meeting that now that gives you two things one it gives you a way of um, urging our allies to take more of a share of their own defense which I think is a reasonable request um, But the second thing it does is it gives us some sort of exit if the Russians call our bluff. We don't have a means of defending them. Um, But that doesn't jeopardize our other treaty obligations. Because we can say, look, they didn't meet their commitments, so this is a different case. That does sound like exactly the kind of legalistic exit strategy that we would keep in our pocket. Right. And use as right. soon as it was required to. <laughs> right. But whereas, you know, Hillary Clinton saying we have an absolute ironclad commitment that isn't backed up by any sort of teeth, that's the sort of dangerous situation where what do you do when they actually call your bluff? So before I go to Dave, yes. uh, you are for not defending those countries that are currently in NATO? I'm for, I'm for defending American interests first. And I think that there is an American interest in at least ensuring that there's no single power that dominates the European continent. It's fine to have the Baltic republics in NATO. That has already, that's already, we've crossed that bridge. Right. But if they're going to be in, they're going to need to have take a more realistic share of their own defense. And that has already, um, there's some movements already towards that Estonia is increasing its defense spending. 
Um, Latvia is investing more in training their civilians in insurgency tactics, which is something that, that it doesn't gnarly. It doesn't pose an offensive threat right. to Russia, but it does at least heighten the costs and yeah. deterrence more credible. Well, I was going to say there's no realistic way that any of those countries could individually defeat Russia, even if they're spending 10% of their money, of their GDP on defense. Right. But to train your civilians in insurgency tactics, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, okay, Dave, total change of subject for you. Or we could just, well, I, I wanted to ask a couple questions. Specifically. Okay. So, so just... Just to kind of recap, basically what you're saying is Trump gave himself an out. Yes. And that if the Russians did try to take some of the Baltic states, he's got an out so we could avoid like all out war with Russia. Is that basically correct? Right. And I don't think that Donald Trump is some geopolitical genius or strategist, but I think that it's just the way that he thinks is it's a very opportunistic way of thinking that where is my out? How can I get out of this? Right. Um, it's been the mark of his business. My concern is that I think is that Trump is not as intelligent as Putin. And, and Putin, I don't know a lot about Vladimir Putin. I know he's ex KGB, and I know he's he seems like a very sly individual who's able to basically be the kind of the uh, leader of Russia, either president or prime minister for many years. He doesn't seem to be vacating power, but. Maybe it's American propaganda, but like what at the end of the day, what are Russian? Here's my question to you: um, Why, why have American-Russian relations been so cold? And what do the Russians really want at the end of the day? Because a common man in America thinks like Russia is evil and that Russia wants to, I, I don't know, that they want to be a global superpower and really start pushing back on America. Um, so I'm curious about those two points. Well. To answer the, the second question first, why are U.S.-Russian relations so bad? This would take an extended discussion, but I think the short answer is because Germany reunified um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, Germany has always, or at least for a century or more, a unified Germany has been a destabilizing force in Europe, and I don't think that that's changed. But as for the question about their relative intelligence. The lucky thing is that in most cases it doesn't really matter how smart the individual leaders are. Um, presidents tend to be more like other presidents than like ordinary people and most of their day is spent thinking about how to stay president. And I think that's going to be true of Trump and I think that's also true of Putin. Um, so what you have to look at are structurally um, how does the United States government compared to the Russian government. And there's some serious weaknesses that Putin has to deal with. Probably the chief one being that everyone in the Russian government is lying all the time about everything. Um, there isn't really a, a set standard for rule of law or for even basic truth. So that's a serious weakness that he'll have to deal with whoever the president was. Um, and it doesn't really matter how individually smart he is, he's going to have to be looking at his back most of the time. Meaning he's staying in power, meaning his motivations are um, securing the what, like the, the warm seaports, the western border, and then having American sanctions lifted? Is that yes. what you're saying? Like those things are vital for him to stay in power? 
exactly. as a Russian president. Okay. Right. Okay. Interesting. And then I had another question too. Basically, you seem to be saying, let me preface it with this. Trump, to me, what um, concerns me is he just doesn't seem like he knows what he's doing. I can't help but to feel that way, given given some of the rhetoric on the campaign trail, some of the things you said, although he won, so maybe he's actually much smarter than I think he is. And then two, like reading in the New York Times today, it seems like there's a lot of chaos right now in this transition team. Um, Having said that, you, Daniel, seem to kind of have an assumption that he, uh, I don't want to speak for you, but that he intuitively kind of has, (laughs) here's, most national security experts disagree with Donald Trump on foreign policy right now. At least the current national security experts do. Donald Trump spent his whole life in business. So it's hard for me to think that Donald Trump actually has a better idea. You make a strong case, but a better idea on how to deal with Russia and how to deal with kind of foreign relations. You know, you're arguing, and Jill Stein seems to argue, that we might actually be safer under Trump than under Clinton. But that doesn't seem to be the prevailing um, opinion with national security. And then part of part of my question too is something you're, you seem to be assuming that Trump seems to understand intuitively that countries need to be defending themselves, like some of the Baltic states you had mentioned. And also another example would be Trump saying, "Yeah, I think Japan should be able to have nuclear weapons because it, they can defend themselves against North Korea." And in a sense, that's not actually the worst idea because it might prevent us from um, from having some sort of like an extreme engagement with North Korea. Um, so is that kind of his, is he really kind of a non-interventionalist, like kind of a Rand Paul, Ron Paul, uh, Gary Johnson style? Can, can you trust that he's a non-interventionalist? How do you know this guy's not really a hawk? Um, kind of disguised in sheep's clothing. There's a lot of questions there. Sorry about that. Yeah, this is not one question. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll start with the national security experts. There was yeah, a please do. <laughs> time when national security experts assured us that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, national security experts can be wrong. And I think that this is, again, a, a, a case where for the most part, I think a lot of their public statements were motivated by a belief that Hillary Clinton would win the presidency and they were looking for their jobs. Um, there's a quite robust school of foreign policy, the realist school, um, which has most recently been associated with James Baker and Henry Kissinger, um, that more or less aligns with at least some of Uh, what Trump is saying. So it's not exactly a non-interventionist foreign policy, but it's a foreign policy that tends to place what it perceives as American economic and military interests ahead of, you know, creating a liberal international world order or spreading democracy or other ideological goals. And I think that that's the sort of policy that we're likely to see. When did Trump pick that up, that that type of national security ideology? Well, Do you I, know? I don't know, but he's at least in his campaign speeches outlined uh, a foreign policy. One of the difficulties with Trump, of course, is that he speaks elliptically. You do sort of have to piece together what he means. 
Um, I do think that that's one, one of the reasons why he tends to be effective at persuading people. But it does make the job of deciding what exactly he's going to do uh, somewhat difficult. The second difficulty is that a lot of people in the uh, national security establishment, very few of them want to, at least during the campaign season, wanted to publicly associate themselves. Um, but there were a few, and I think I mentioned in a previous conversation of ours that the uh, cranky Machiavelli of Maryland, uh, Edward Lutwak, wrote an editorial that basically said his, his view was that Trump's foreign policy would be a more or less dull, realist foreign policy, and not as dramatic as many people were expecting. Can I get a word in here as well about these so-called foreign security policy experts? F all those guys. When was the last time they did a good job on anything in the last three decades? I don't give a crap about what any so-called foreign security policy expert has to say. I'm like, you guys have done terrible jobs for the entire length of my personal existence. I'd be super stoked to see some new faces on the block. I didn't think those new faces would be Donald Trump or anyone associated with him. So, no, I'm not, like, yet relieved. Again, as with Hillary Clinton, super relieved she's not president. I'm super relieved these uh, so-called experts uh, are not in business and hopefully won't be. But I'm, yeah, I'm tentative and scared about who will be the next uh, group leading the country's foreign policy. Why are you so relieved Hillary Clinton isn't president? She's a horrible person. She's a straight-up liar. What do you think was her, her most kind of devious? It's not even... Can you call it devious when it's just the person she's been for the last, like, 16 years? I just... I feel like she was the pinnacle of the kind of Bush-Clinton era of American politics. And those... Uh, 4, 8, 16, 20, 20 years pretty much on the button. I mean, I, I would even put Obama in the kind of Clintonite era because he ran on hope and change, got elected uh, over Hillary Clinton, and then turned around and brought her entire like administration into his and just kind of adopted it. He was like a different figurehead on top of all of it. Uh, I got on a tangent there. Oh, yeah. I don't, I just think she would have been uh, a continuation of this failed America that we've had since, like, 1992. And I, I think we need something different, like, radically different. Well, this is why I'm kind of happy to stick with the foreign policy discussion for a bit, just because when I hear Jill Stein, who, who is a fighter against climate change, who really wants to see world peace, I mean, if you could think of a a more modern-day Jesus Christ. I don't know who else it would be, right? Okay. Like she, old, old words. But, <laughs> right, right. I'm, not, I'm not agreeing with you. but <laughs> I mean, the Green Party is literally, those are their ideals, right? Okay. Like the, a humanitarian existence without war. Yeah. That's what they seek. Sure. And she just rips into Clinton. And, and I think the, the Bush-Clinton kind of era that... She said recently, we're bombing seven, under Obama, we're, we're literally bombing seven different countries at this yeah. point. And, and, and we have we have these hot flashes with Russia. And so in a way, yeah, I agree. It's, I, what I'm hoping is that Trump actually keeps, that Trump is actually, does George Bush ran on non-interventionalist yes. foreign policy and then things happened and then he invaded, yeah. and he invaded Iraq. 
But that sentence says it all. Things happened, and things right. will always happen. Right. But he chose to invade not one but two countries, and probably police actions, quote-unquote, in several more. And at the end of the day, if you were a kid and you're 16 today, you didn't grow up in America that wasn't at war. We've been at war your entire existence. So I don't know how many, what percentage of the American populace is 16 years or younger, but that's probably upwards of like 20%. That's nuts. That, that entire generation knows nothing other than our country's at war, we're always bombing people. I wanted to circle back to one of the embedded questions that you had about Trump's uh, management style. I do think that it tends to be very improvisational and that a lot of things he doesn't necessarily have a long-term plan for them. But we've had that sort of leadership style before. It's reminiscent of Franklin Roosevelt and his approach to the New, New Deal, which was you know, essentially ad hoc. He had a conversation with someone and it was like, oh yeah, let's add ar artists to the public works program. Sure, they need jobs. Mm. Um, so I think that we'll likely see that sort of management style coming from Trump. There are two stable characteristics of Hillary Clinton's personality that I think continually get her into trouble. One is a penchant for secrecy, and the second is placing personal loyalty, even in cases where it's politically damaging, um, that she tends to value, in other words, people like Huma Abedin or Sidney Blumenthal, who have politically toxic associations and values them for their personal loyalty. Now that might be an admirable trait in a person, but it can be a crippling trait in a politician. Agreed. <laughs> I mean, bringing on, uh, was it Wasserman Schultz after the whole scandal, like the, d the next day she's on the, the campaign team, it's like, come on. Like, that's as scandalous as anything Donald Trump said. If not more, because that scandal actually undermined the entire democratic process as it, you know, even if it's not the way the rules are written, it's kind of the way the American populace conceives of it. Whereas Trump is a firebrand and he talks a lot of smack, but he didn't, like, screw over voters necessarily. Right. He just, you know appealed to a certain kind of voter right before i know you want to maybe kind of get to clinton and some different policies. i'd like to seesaw back and forth right right, but, right you know i had one more i did want i was curious about thoughts on trump's kind of cabinet appointments this there's been a lot of information coming out on his key advisors i was curious about opinions on that um, i know that he's like counselor and is like political counselor Steve Bannon and then it looks like help me with his name but his chief of staff I think is Prince Priebus Prince Priebus right I was curious what you thought about those two can guys I, can I throw out three other names as sure. long as we're on this topic so I already talked smack on Obama for bringing on the Clinton team when he was elected not hope not change uh, and of course the people in Trump's orbit that I would also like to not see in government anymore are Gingrich, Giuliani, and Chris Christie. So add those three names to what Trump is doing. It looks like Chris Christie is being pushed out from what I read today in the New York Times. Uh, he's not on the transition team. It looks like they're distancing from Christie. Giuliani and Gingrich, I'm not so sure. Well, I put out the proviso that at this stage, and it's been a feature of Trump's campaign, 
a lot of disinformation will be coming out. There's the Trump campaign plays the media like a fiddle. So they'll float a rumor, cause a controversy, and the real story is really going on elsewhere. So I don't think at this point that we really do have much information about cabinet appointments. I think those discussions and that competition is going on right now. And the names that are being floated out probably won't be the names of the cabinet that we eventually see. But the the Priebus and the um, Bannon appointments are interesting. Um, Priebus, it seems to be uh, essentially a reward for services rendered um, and for patching over any sort of dispute in the Republican Party. Um, it looks like Paul Ryan will be returning to this uh, speaker seat. So <clears throat> I'm assuming that at this point, uh, Trump is trying to consolidate his friends um, and keeping some of his enemies as, as close as he can. Um, and I mean, that makes sense because assuming that he can hold his coalition together, he will be going in as the most powerful president since uh, FDR. He'll have congressional majorities in both houses. He'll have an upcoming Supreme Court appointment. Most state legislatures are Republican, and it's approaching the number to where a constitutional amendment even could be passed. So assuming he can hold together this coalition, um, I think that's his first priority, to ensure that uh, the Republicans can pass through a lot of the policy proposals that he wants. So speaking of that Supreme Court appointment, uh, how unconstitutional is it that the party you have supported uh, in this election cycle has done the most unconstitutional thing in not following through on Obama's appointment? Well, the, the Constitution does give the Senate the right to advise and consent, and sure. their advice seems to have been, uh, you know, in a phrase, GFY. <laughs> um, Right. So, so is that advice? It, I mean, it's it's or one just of, consent. It's it's one of the problems of the American political system that the way that we have checks and balances usually involves these very mechanical collisions, mm -hmm. um, and that between the branches, and that um, the end result of a standoff is that nothing happens. Right. So that's been a long-standing feature in American government. We had a civil war because, you know, essentially nothing happened over a very vital question. Um, and it, it looks like the machinery of the American constitutional design is just doing what it does. Stasis. So you're not willing to accept any sort of moral or ethical... Um uh, guilt is not the right word, but I feel like Republicans are to blame in the case of this particular stasis. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would have been fine with having, um, I forget his name, but the justice. Um, it starts with a G. Graham. I can't remember his name either. Right, right. But, but I would have been fine yeah. with him being appointed. But who he is or he, who she is, is, uh, you know, besides the point. Like, they intentionally blocked what is otherwise the president's constitutional duty, not even just a right, but a duty to have nine people on the Supreme Court. It's not like nothing was happening. The court didn't, you know, go to sleep and, you know, wake us up when this is done. It's like, no, there are important opinions 
in the backlog, and now they only have eight justices, so of course we have four, four on four deadlocks. So, I mean, well, that's culpability to the highest degree, and they're not just failing... I mean, they're failing the country and the American people who nominally support them now, I guess. But it's just... One, well, and they were threatening to continue a four-year blockade if Hillary Clinton had gotten elected. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's not something that I praise, but it's I just see it as part of politics. It's like a lion eating an antelope. Mm. I feel like that's very removed from the reality of how, you know, government must work aside from what politics is. Yeah, I, I mean, I tend to have a fairly removed view on politics. I've moved to as, as far as I can get away from Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, I will try not to belabor the point. Uh, anything else you want to add? About the Supreme Court justice? Or, well, Whatever. as far as that, I mean, it's just dirty politics yeah. on mine. I think that they're playing very dirty, and it's, it's a big shame. Um, yeah, so, Dan, is it it's fair to say that you're just kind of a, a realist, kind of pragmatic thinker when it comes to politics, that ideology, in a sense, isn't really um, what you're thinking. It's more of... Well, no, I mean, I have political convictions like anyone else, but, yes, I tend to be pretty uh, cynical about how politics actually works. Um, the most politically influential year of my life, I was eight years old and I had to stay home. I was bedridden because I was sick. And so because I was at home, I wasn't in school. Um, my mom had me read Plato's Republic. How old were you when you got Plato's Republic? Uh, I was eight. <clears throat> um, but I wasn't outside playing like normal kids. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I had to keep a journal of what I thought about it. And it to me, I was really uh, was really moved by that vision of you know, philosopher kings and some sort of ideal utopian republic. And my mom crushed it all by telling me to go read Machiavelli afterwards. <laughs> so after after reading The Prince, that's sort of been my view on politics. There's an ideal realm in which people should have their convictions, but you have to also be realistic about how politics actually works. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, going back to, so you know, uh, you were kind of a one-issue voter for Trump, and I was, the honest truth is I was a one-issue voter for Clinton. And okay. My issue, we know Daniel's mind, was climate change. Now, in practicality, how much uh, would Clinton have done that remains, you know, we'll, we'll never know. Uh, I was originally a Bernie supporter because he seemed to be the most aggressive on climate change. Um, Clinton said one thing with conviction, and I thought, I thought it was really intelligent. In, I think, 2008, she ran against in the primary against Barack Obama. She said, you know, we have the opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. We can have kind of an American green revolution where, one, we can solve climate change, and two, Kind of a green industrial revolution where we can have advanced manufacturing you know green jobs and we can uh, transform our infrastructure into, into green energy she said that in 08 and i thought that that was genius and also correct like to solve two really big problems um, 
and that's something she was saying eight years later. So uh, that was the main, I mean, her, obviously her hawkish tendencies were concerning, um, but that was why I was voting for her. And, and I think that's extremely important that that happens. I also think it's very smart. Um, and so it's very disappointing for me to see Donald Trump get elected and then it looks like he's appointing to the EPA a climate change denier. And that to me is, it's almost unbelievable. Yes, very frustrating. I mean, nothing that you would expect otherwise from the Republican Party at this point, based on their history. Um, I don't know how you change that. Like, they've become the anti-science party somehow. And I, I don't know who that appeals to except for maybe a, a small like cabal of people that sell oil. But other than that, I don't know how, how this keeps happening. And I'm, I'm, curi- yeah, I'm curious to know, now that they're gonna control Congress and the White House, if that's what they really believe. Because if climate change is real, which it is, and if we're already starting to see effects of it, which we are, and if it's a national security threat, which the CIA and the U.S. military and Pentagon have said that it is. It, it really, I'm curious to see if at some point Trump, who from what I've read is one, not ideological, and two, is pragmatic and also somewhat open. I read a psychological profile on, on him a couple days ago, which we could talk about here in a little bit, but um, I'm curious to know, he's kind of, it seems like he's stated more of an all of the above energy approach at least in one debate, he seemed to say that we should be pursuing everything. But as a liberal, I'm just kind of keeping my fingers crossed that he's going to wake up at some point and realize, what are we doing? This makes no sense. He has a family. I mean, I think he does want the best for the country. And that because he is an outsider, he's not, and hopefully not tied in with oil lobbyists, that maybe we might get a turnaround. He's already said that he wants to keep a couple provisions of Obamacare. He's already backed off on immigration, kind of hoping maybe I'm going to see a change in climate change policy. But given his EPA recommendation, I'm not not feeling good about that. Well, I think for anyone who supports him, but especially for people who oppose him, it's important to diagnose how he won and, you know, what, what management style, what techniques he uses in in governance and in running his campaign in order to effectively oppose him because there are some things that people can do I think that can check even the power of a very popular president on the other hand there are some things that may seem like a good idea on Facebook but probably aren't uh, a very productive use of time so if you understand how he's marshalling support you can then be uh, you know, attack that coalition. Um, so maybe at some point we can reach that. Sure. Uh, actually, on the topic of Obamacare, I saw a very interesting thing on TV. I was at the gym and they had CNN on because it was the Wednesday after the election or the Thursday. And uh, it was actually at a Trump rally because we have the anti-Trump president protest and then the anti-anti-Trump president protest. And at the that one, the supporters... There was someone with a sign that said, uh, down with the Obama mandate, single payer now. And I was like, huh, 
that's really interesting because Obamacare is a really crappy half step. It's, and it's not even really a half step. It's like a 10% step, right? They, they dipped their toe in the water. And uh, then a lot of businesses got a lot more money. And we paid a lot more for healthcare. Uh, and so you have these people who are the angry people that voted for Trump. And I, mean, I have to assume they're feeling it too. And they're like, why should I pay more for healthcare? There's so many people on government healthcare. Let's just get that for everybody. And I was like, oh, okay. So we all can be on the same page. So... Uh, now that he is the president, they have, you know, both houses of Congress, and I assume a lot of uh, state legislature support in terms of the GOP, you know, at least on the political side. You know, is it cool if they change their tune and they do the right thing for the wrong reasons? Like, isn't that weird? No, and that's that's partly what I was alluding to with, with climate change and maybe seeing Trump kind of change his views. Part of me thinks, part of me really thinks this is just professional wrestling and that the media is hyping up these huge fights and that the people in Washington really don't disagree about, about that much. So with Obamacare, for example, he's already keeping two provisions. I mean, it, 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 he's already looks like he's kind of pivoting to, to policy-wise to sort of a moderate stance. And that's what I was saying with climate change was if it's true that the CIA and Pentagon and everyone else has said that this is a serious issue. I don't think the Republicans, if they cared about the country, would be that stupid to not recognize this and then say, okay, yeah, we made, you know, we, we kind of pitched the American people that, to the anti-climate change people, that this is just some global agenda to whatever they were saying, global agenda to like reduce America's power or whatever the excuse was. But let's come clean now. Let's let's do it in infrastructure. Let's do more like green energy investment. Um, but I, I don't think that's going to happen because I'm sure a lot of these Republicans in Congress are there because of lobbyists, right, from the oil industry. So, um, yeah, I'm okay. Skeptical. Climate change for sure. Uh, back to healthcare. <laughs> I wanted to go down that route. Did you have any thoughts on? On healthcare? Yes. Oh, I've always supported having a single-payer system. Okay. I think that we should have something like the British National Health Service in this country. But in terms of uh, how you view uh, the president-elect, like, is that a realistic thing? Has he said anything healthcare-related throughout, other than Obamacare is dumb? He, in his past public statements, he's indicated some support for a single-payer model. He's also indicated some support for having health savings accounts, which is the Republican let the free market solve this. Pretend solution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Eliminating the lines around the states, I think, was about as far as we got in terms of a concrete policy proposal from him. I mean, even that would do uh, something to reduce the monopoly that a lot of health insurers have in state markets. Um, but I think at, at some point the United States has to join other advanced industrialized countries and provide some sort of government subsidy for at least the poorest segments of the population. Um, I mean, we already have subsidies. I have a subsidy through Obamacare. I'm like, well, that's better than nothing, I guess. Right. But I mean, a workable model, um, maybe something more along the lines of, um, we had a smaller country, we could do something like what Switzerland 
We don't, don't unfortunately. Yeah. We have a big country. Yeah. <laughs> but we, sorry, we, we, we identified the two, two uh, key provisions of Obamacare that no, Trump you, already pulled back on. You just mentioned the, that there were two. Right, right. Yeah. Did we discuss those two? No, no. Feel free. Right, <laughs> right. Step so, into the breach. So after he met with Obama, he said, one, we're going to keep, I want to go ahead and keep the, uh, anyone up to the age of 26 under their parents' health insurance into the issue of, um, I guess, not being billed or not being allowed to get insurance because of pre-existing conditions. So, again, two, two examples of, I mean, he was declaring with a pitchfork and flames repeal Obamacare before his uh, supporters and literally day one right. after being elected, he's, he's pulling back. Well, those are the two most politically popular provisions. And again, his goal is going to be staying president. He doesn't seem to yes. be particularly ideological about it. So he'll do whatever he f- perceives as being the most popular. Which brings me back to the sign that I saw on TV and just blew my mind. I was like, oh, what if his base gets really angry about the lack of single pair? And then somehow this angry populace that all of us living in blue states have been like, ah, those jerks. It's like, oh, no, wait, now we have health care. I mean, how, how do we, <laughs> I mean, so-called liberals, right, living in uh, these states who had no idea at the amount of, you know, actual support this guy had, how do we feel in four years if he pulls off something like that spectacular and suddenly in 2020 we have a single-payer health care system? Well, we've talked a little bit about the personal qualities of the candidates, but I think the real reason what actually decided this election um, were two things. First was the political environment, and second, how they actually ran their campaigns. So mm-hmm. larger structural things. Um, the political environment, I think, you can divide that into two parts. The first was that this was a realignment election, which we've historically had. But the second is that this was a regicidal year, that people were just very great <laughs> tired of their, yeah. of their leadership. <clears throat> so I'll begin with the realignment bit. Um, Probably because we have fixed terms of office, every 24 years, like clockwork since 1800, we've had a particularly bitter campaign that usually results in uh, one political party collapsing or a scandal-plagued president coming into office or the death in office of that president. And it it's because mathematically you have to have two parties. The way that our um, system is set up, it eventually boils down to just having two, two big tent parties. And those coalitions have to realign. The last time that we had that sort of realignment was in 1992 when the Democrats decided that they had to accept at least some parts of the Reagan revolution in order to remain politically viable. Before that, it's 1968 when Nixon pioneered the Southern strategy, and you can go on and on back in American history. So right on schedule, we've hit another realignment election, and the realignment here has been the collapse of older Cold War categories of the left and the right, and instead the consolidation over an argument between globalism and nationalism. And I think that's important to understand the nature of the new coalition 
that the Republican Party has. Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think uh, Donald Trump had an opportunity here. But the second part of it um, is that it was a regicidal year. Um, just a, a couple of statistics. Um, from since 1999, the suicide rate in this country has increased. Um, we've heard about the evacuation of manufacturing jobs. Um, in the 60s, a CEO made 20 times what the average worker did. The average CEO made 20 times. In uh, 2013, it was closer to 292 times what the average worker did. So there's been a there's been a lot of pain in the United States that the political class has been entirely unresponsive to. Another point to that stat I heard recently is the life expectancy of working class whites in America, basically heartland life expectancy has actually been falling. Well, of late, and drug addiction going up. Yeah, the, the mortality rate um, has been going up among um, middle-aged white Americans. Yeah. And that's one of the few demographic groups for which the mortality rate has been increasing. Um, life expectancy is still lower for blacks and Hispanics than whites, but the mortality rate, at least um, within the same age group, has been declining. In Europe, um, the mortality rates have also been declining. So that's a disturbing uh, trend to see. And yes, you're right, suicide, uh, alcoholism, and opioids are, opioid addictions are some of the leading causes for that uh, increase. Um, you add to this two other things. First, we had the Iraq War, which has been the worst piece of foreign policy bungling in this country since Vietnam. Agreed. Um, and then on, on top of that, you had, for most middle-class Americans, the most significant investment that they'll have is their home. That's what they expect to pass on to their children. Uh, Wall Street decided to use their homes as casinos and in the process wrecked the global economy, destroyed a lot of pensions, um, and really um, impinged upon the life dreams of ordinary middle-class people. Uh, in a less patient and less orderly country, those bankers would have been shot. Yeah, they got off. Now, a lot of this has just been ignored by the political class, and Donald Trump saw the... Uh, Ann Coulter has used this analogy, the $1,000 bill on the sidewalk, and decided he'd pick it up. Ann Coulter. <laughs> yeah. Not my favorite person, but still an American treasure for saying what she thinks. <laughs> I thought you had interesting things to say, too, about as the campaigns were winding up like days before the election, and particularly Donald Trump's strategy as uh, you know the final few days, strategy for pulling the last couple of votes he could compared to Clinton, and how maybe that might have kind of he might have gotten the edge there the last few days of what he did particularly. Yeah, it was it was very interesting to see the difference in how the campaigns were running. There's a interesting blog that's written by John Robb. Um, he's a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, 
and Yale. Um, and he writes about insurgencies. And he said that essentially what we were seeing with Trump's campaign is what he calls an open source insurgency, where there's an attack on an established order and there's input from various you know, distributed uh, people who just independently decide that they want to um, support this, was, uh, support Trump's movement. So you had people, for example, making their own commercials or evangelizing on behalf of Trump. Just to take one statistic and to show the extent to which I think Clinton was mired in older ways of campaigning. Um, Hillary Clinton ran 70,724 television ads before Donald Trump ran his first television ad. Um, the degree to which the different campaigns have used social media has also, I think, been interesting. Um, I talked, I had some off-the-record conversations with staffers in the Clinton campaign as well as in the Trump campaign. And to me, the most striking difference was that Clinton's, uh, Clinton staffers would talk a lot about micro-targeting, and they had a very passive view of how to use social media, mostly to just gather data so that you can find your voters. The Trump campaign had a very active view. You know, 40% um, of the Twitter followers and Donald Trump's um, Twitter feed are bots. And they're just there to generate stories that other people will then pass along. And that's why you can see like various just crazy rumors coming out about Hillary Clinton that all of a sudden are trending at the top of Twitter. It's because these bots pass them out and then real people pick this up, they read it, they retweet it, and suddenly it's, it becomes news. Um, Trump has said that having a Twitter is like owning a newspaper without the losses. Mm. Does he keep the Twitter account as president? Probably. I mean, it's it's his most effective way of reaching a mass audience and sort of going around sure. uh, mainstream media. Higher consequences now. Yeah. Is that a good thing? It's, it's like radio was for FDR or television was for JFK. I mean, there, there was a time when an American president would have to campaign in the language of Shakespeare and the Bible in order to win. Uh, Americans don't read Shakespeare and the Bible anymore. They read YouTube comments, and the president will have to adjust accordingly. So we will have a president who campaigns in the language of YouTube comments, for better and worse. For better or for worse. Yeah. That kind of opens up a whole new can of worms, I think it's interesting. But we can talk about that. I know you've got other things that you might want to ask about too. Um, I did just as far as information sharing and- Add one stuff. more thing about insurgencies um, and how they work. There's a very interesting New Yorker article by Malcolm Gladwell called How David Beats Goliath. And it's about how um, armies that face a 10 to one disadvantage, nevertheless, in military history have sometimes uh, won battles. Um, they actually win at a surprising rate, a quarter of the time. And the first reason is because a lot of successful insurgencies will replace effort or compensate with effort um, for ability. So in other words, you'll go through the desert or you'll fight in the swamp um, in order to uh, get the element of surprise. 
But there's one other thing that insurgencies do that can flip the odds in their favor. So it goes from one in four to two out of three times David will beat Goliath. And that's if they decide to throw out the rule book and do what uh, Gladwell says is socially horrifying. Um, and what we've seen from Trump is a consistent violation of the norms of political behavior. And it goes to even small things like wearing a hat, something that political candidates shouldn't do. And he's out there wearing a baseball cap. He's the, the day that I decided, like most people, when Trump announced that he was running for president, I laughed. I thought it was a joke. Um, but the day that I decided he might actually have a chance to win was about a month after his announcement when he published Lindsey Graham's phone number and it was the real thing. Because that, that is burning a bridge in politics and it, it shows that he was willing to break political norms in order to win. Fair enough. Um, so the manner in which he ran his campaign, is the GOP now the party of angry people? And what happens if those angry people, assuming that you accept my premise, what happens if they don't get what they were hoping to get out of this? They're not going away. Those people are they are here. Yeah, and that's the most dangerous aspect of this. Um, some people have commented that in the week following the election, there's been an uptick in you know, political violence. Um, that has always been hanging in the air. And that was something that I think would have happened whoever got elected. Um, his supporters would have been quite angry. Um, he didn't help it, of course, by floating the idea that the election was rigged. Um, but that sort of atmosphere of political violence has been in the air and it's been on both sides. And that's the most dangerous part of, about this situation. Um, that his supporters, if disappointed, um, could decide that they don't have a political route to addressing their grievances. Um, and at that point, um, they also are the better armed half of the population. So. When we were talking, I thought, and the only reason I would ask this question, because in one sense it sounds so crazy, but the only reason I would kind of want to bring this up again is because you had mentioned when you four months ago argued down for other people that Trump would win, and you said it was specifically because of Russia. And then Trump ends up winning and we see all these developments with how the Russians were perhaps hacking or cooperating or liking Trump. I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I, you were correct, right, with, with several of those assertions. One, that Trump won. And two, that Russia, that the reason um, – you made two assertions. One, Trump won. And two, there is a deep connection with Trump's foreign policy and how it benefits the Russians. And those have both been confirmed. There's no doubt about it. Do you agree with that, Kevin? Yeah, no, I thought you were saying that Trump was elected because he supported Russia. No. Okay. No. But just that there was a special relationship between Trump and Russia that would benefit Russia and that Trump would win. Okay, you said that four months ago. No one believed you, and it happened. We were also, and I don't want to go too down like a dark trail, but you had, I think in that same conversation, kind of given some other predictions on how you think some of this could play out. And some of it had to do with, 
seemed like you thought Trump would win, and then you kind of had another projection too. I don't, I don't think you're Nostradamus, but I thought it was interesting how you thought maybe the next ten years of kind of uh, American life might might look like. Well, all of those structural problems that I've mentioned still exist, and the election hasn't changed that one way or the other. So those are longer term trends that if the United States isn't able to solve are going to pose really uh, big problems for the country. But, I mean, President Obama used the analogy of an ocean liner to describe the U.S. government, that it's not a speedboat. So turning that ocean liner around or turning it in a different direction is going to take a lot of time, and it's not going to be just because Donald Trump uh, was elected. It, you know, in the most fevered precincts of the alt-right, you know, like fringe nationalists who expect that Donald Trump will inaugurate, I don't know, the supremacy of the KKK or whatever, um, even if he wanted to, he couldn't because there's just too many um, countervailing forces there. So I think there's, it would help to have some sense of proportion about what realistically um, Trump could achieve whatever he, you know, personally desires. Mm. But yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ironies in this election, not least among them that working class voters voted for a man who uh, has a golden elevator. Indeed. Indeed. Um, Is there anything that directly concerns you about uh, Mr. Trump as president? Oh, yes. Um, As I said, in order to have a politically viable party, you need to build a coalition. And any coalition is going to have some people from the loony bin. Um, You know, if you wanted to build a political party on just having decent, intelligent people, that's fine. But you'd have a party of the minority of Americans and you'd never win. And yeah, so there are some quite disturbing trends. Um, Mr. Bannon um, denies that he's an ethno-nationalist and says that he he just stands for- An ethno-nationalist, that's a polite way of saying? A white supremacist. Okay. (laughs) Um, But the uh, Front National, the far-right party in France, Um, has certainly taken a lot of comfort from Trump's victory, and a lot of other far-right European parties have as well. That's not a um, comforting trend. Do you think most of the the disconcerting trends you see from the Trump presidency, are they domestic or foreign? Sounds domestic. Or the the negative consequences? They're both. Hmm. Um, You know... Some people, I think, have maybe put a little too much emphasis on the, the... The real danger in the United States is not necessarily people who dress up and call themselves like grand wizards of, of the KKK. Um, what it is is uh, the people who occupy the polite face of the white supremacist movement, the sort of people who write for the Occidental Quarterly, 
um, who find ways to slip it into, uh, you know, more or less bigotry under a polite disguise. That's really the, the more alarming trend. And yeah, Donald Trump could give them some sort of moral cover. Hmm. Now, oh, sorry, I just had a thought in my mind. Okay, so Donald Trump calls himself the great negotiator. Yes. And that's his shtick, and that's how he's going to solve both national problems and international problems. Uh, with a business, if it doesn't work out, you can wrap up shop, walk away, declare bankruptcy, get your tax break, whatever. It's cool. Move on to the next one. You can't do that with foreign policy, let's say. Uh, if you don't like what the Russians or the Chinese are doing, they're not going anywhere. Uh, you got to deal with them. So uh, he's notoriously thin-skinned. What happens when day one or day 100, uh, he, didn't, he doesn't get his way? Well, I think the great asset that he has is that he's, he's very good at persuasion. Um, that, and one of the nice things about democracy is we may not necessarily get the wisest person, but we do get someone who's at least good at persuading um, the majority of people to vote for them by definition. Um, but, but Donald Trump... <laughs> <laughs> like not, did not get a majority of the votes. We'll get there. <laughs> well, okay. He, he, got, he won a majority of the popular, the 51 popular contests that we had in this country. Um, he won the Electoral College. Yeah. Okay. Um, But, you know, at the very least, in order to get that many people to vote for you, you have to be sure. pretty good at it. I couldn't do it. <laughs> right. And I, I think that there are, in general, three psychological needs that good persuaders meet that Donald Trump does a, a pretty good job at, an excellent job at. Shouldn't be too condescending. He won the presidential sure. contest, and I didn't. Um, <laughs> but the the first psychological need is that people, I think, have a need to be mentally engaged. Um, boredom is something that most people try to avoid. Uh, the second need that people have is a need to feel understood, to feel like someone can actually relate to their situation. And the final thing is that people have a need to explain things. Even if they're disparate facts, they need to find some way to harmonize that. And Trump and his campaign managed to hit the nail on the head on all three of those things. It was one of the reasons why he did um, better than Clinton. He's also, I think, uh, the most charismatic president that we've had, at least since Reagan, maybe even since JFK. Um, and when I say charismatic, I don't just mean that he's charming, right? Like Bill Clinton was slick willy, but he wasn't necessarily charismatic. Um, what I mean when I say charismatic is that he has an ability to overcome bureaucratic restraints, to mobilize people, in other words, to act for him. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of foreign policy, dealing with foreign leaders, how do you think that plays out? Right. So your traditional leader would need to have a good metric for identifying who would be a, a good foreign, foreign policy spokesperson. I think Donald Trump will be able to mo mobilize 
people who are interested and who have the ability to contribute in that field to apply. Um, you know, we've we've had a, a lot of sour grapes from the foreign policy establishment saying, "Well, I'm not going to work in the Trump administration." And if you really did genuinely believe that your country was in danger because of who had just been elected president, that's probably when you should be stepping up to serve. Um, so, you know, for those people, good riddance. <laughs> Not just the record, but I mean the attitude as well. Yeah. And so I, th I think we will see uh, a lot of people who um, you might disagree with their vision, but who nevertheless have important and significant contributions to make to the country. Mm. They'll be mobilized um, by force of Mr. Trump's per personality. Mm. And real quick about, about his psychology. So from what I've read a couple couple days, um, kind of reviewing a couple different articles, a couple days, there's a long form journal, uh, piece of journalism from the Atlantic that was written in March. So well before, I think it was just as the Republican primaries were getting started. Uh, basically, Donald Trump, um, the, the author identified five factors, kind of five basic psychological factors. There's extroversion, sense of openness, neuroticism, um, <laughs> yeah, see, <laughs> openness, neuroticism, or the two others, um, agreeableness, and then what's the fifth? Excuse me for, you're going to have to edit this part out. Uh, but basically what he said is he scores off the charts extroversion. Okay. So he's a type of guy who, who can go and just fill up the room with his personality. He's really well with people, very, very charismatic. Um, but on agreeableness, he's off the charts low on agreeable, meaning... If someone disagrees with them, if he feels like there's an enemy, right? Or someone mm -hmm. disagrees, he um, he'll fight to, to that every last bit to to win over that person, like he's a winner. However, um, and and basically the author had said his 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 low degree of agreeableness was such that it, it either matched or was worse than Nixon, because Nixon apparently was a very disagreeable person as well. Um, Dan will be able to. To agree or disagree, but I think you'd agree you know more about Nixon than I do. But what he did have to say that he thought was interesting about Trump was um, he actually has a he's actually an open individual, and when they say open, meaning will actually listen to other people's ideas, mm -hmm. and he's not ideological. So that gives you kind of an interesting perspective and 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 how he's going to govern. Yeah, can be combative, disagreeable, right? Uh, very extroverted, kind of a gregarious, but also will entertain like a pragmatic, open mind and listen to like the people who are around him. And kind of on top of that, he's not ideological. So that gives me a little bit of comfort in the sense that he can be such of a bulldog, but the fact that he's pragmatic and not ideological says, you know, hopefully both politics, uh, Domestic and international policy. He's not mm -hmm. going to make huge errors if he has smart advisors. So. Sure. Yeah, um, I mean, Donald Trump's management style, for the most part, is watching other people work and then saying, oh, good job. <laughs> Which actually, you know, as far as that goes, that makes me, I think that's great strategy. I mean, I know one of the criticisms of Obama was that um, he was not, 
I think two things. One, he wasn't very, he's an introvert and he wasn't very good at kind of reaching out and making friends with, with different kind of policymakers. And then two, that I think he tried to kind of shoulder a lot of the work and it seems like Trump's the exact opposite. Trump wrote, I think some manifesto right before he, he announced that he was running for president and in it he had said, you know, my style is I'm going to hire the very best possible people I can find for their departments and make sure that they do a good job. And it seems like the, the executive branch is there's so much going on that that seems wise. It seems like a wise way to manage something like that. Yeah. So that's well, and, and one of the blessings of our constitutional design is that it doesn't really require a wise philosopher king to administer. Uh, the founders assumed that people were, in general, I mean, they had the religion of Calvin and the politics of Hobbes. Um, they assumed that people were flawed and chiefly motivated <clears throat> by their ambition. Um, that's not a bad assumption to make. And so the presidency has had some deeply damaged people occupy it. And nevertheless, the United States has more or less been all right. Um, could have been worse. Nixon being a primary example, you'd get drunk and call, call generals and say we should start a nuclear war. Um, Reagan would have delusional breaks with reality. Um, and, you know, Bill Clinton was otherwise occupied. <laughs> In the, another thing I've kind of thought about is, is yeah, I've been very, once Donald Trump won, I had a little bit, I'm not going to lie, I, I had like a panic moment, right? Mm-hmm. I was so banking on Hillary. For whatever reason, I felt very secure with Hillary. I felt like she was going to do a good job despite her, well, one, I was ignorant about the no-fly zone in Syria, which I've since kind of changed on that. But despite her blunders in Benghazi, I saw Hillary Clinton as a lady who, Secretary of State, Senator, she seemed very smart, while Donald Trump, seemed like just a guy who shoots from the hip, says crazy inflammatory things. So for me, it was like once I saw Trump won, I was like, holy shit. Like we are in some big fucking trouble with foreign policy. Um, having said that, it, it, it seems like with Clinton, again, just some of like the hawk moves that she was making that, that we would have been in, in very big trouble. Um, and so I don't know. It, it's been it's been interesting seeing this switch, and, and and maybe we're better 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 shape in a sense with Trump. I'm not sure. So. I'm not sure either. But uh, based on what you just described, is kind of like how I saw it. But it was we were basically seeing the covers of books, right? We didn't know what was really in that book, and the the you know the problem with each election is you only ever get to read the one book. You don't get to see how they would compare. And so, for better or for worse, <laughs> we got the art of the deal, and uh, it's a crazy fucking cover, <laughs> but now we're going to read it and find out what it's about. Yeah. Uh, but I did want to talk about the Democratic comp- uh, campaign a little bit, yeah. because I want to either ask you or pose this to you, that the Democrats really did bring this upon themselves, the, in the loss. I mean, for as much as um, Donald Trump did right... I suppose, in campaigning the way he did to get a certain electorate to vote for him. Uh, I feel like the Democrats did pretty much everything wrong from the start. For sure. This this whole thing has been a humbling experience for me. One, I've been mocking on Facebook for the last six months about how the Republican Party just dug their own grave. 
uh, and and Trump is basically the the poisonous fruit that they've created, right? They've dug their own grave and they are done. They're going to lose the House and the Senate. They're going to lose the presidency. That's what I've been saying. What happens? The exact opposite. Right. Um, and and how did that play out? It played out with the DNC, which I'm would bet money that Clinton was involved with this, you know, because of, because we know of WikiLeaks is leaking stories during the Democratic primary about Bernie Sanders, leaking different news stories in conjunction with different news agencies, yeah. hit pieces well, on him. That's assumed, right? Like, they would be trying to take him down. Right. Well, they did. I mean, that the evidence shows that yeah. they did. Yeah. Are you talking about the Clinton campaign or the no. DNC itself? So, so You're talking about the DNC. Yes, correct. Yeah. So Wiki, yeah, WikiLeaks published emails showing that DNC operatives are emailing basically... Um, in conjunction with news agencies. Um, I don't remember this. I know one was saying, let's put out a news piece um, in this certain area, like in, in southern states, I think Georgia, Alabama, saying that Bernie is um, an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then some other things, too. They're putting news out, negative news about Bernie, and that was the DNC under Debbie Schwasserman Schultz or whatever her name is. Um, so... Right there, the, the the party that's supposed to stand for for equality and democracy and fairness and and justice is is just corrupt to the core, and nothing ever, no email ever came out about that the Clinton campaign was involved with the DNC with those leaks. Right. But I would bet money that they were for one reason. Whenever the scandal came out, Clinton hired. That person, that yeah. individual, and brought her into the campaign. So I just be very surprised that she wasn't somehow involved. But the general point is, this whole time I've been thinking, man, Republicans, you dug your own grave, and no, they didn't. The Democrats dug their own grave. Yeah. They had a corrupt individual who was probably, you know, the DNC probably eight years ago, two thousand eight, decided after Obama, this is our lady. Um, I think that's the issue. Right. We're, they we're, decided yeah. it wasn't the primary. Exactly. Where were the other candidates? I mean, we talk about Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. But Bernie's this outlier guy who's just like, well, I have this crazy platform. It's not really either one of these parties, but it's you know less offensive to the, the Democrats, so I'll, I'll pretend to be a Democrat. Where were the mainstream Democratic candidates? Well, there's no doubt that the DNC, the DNC decided that it was going to be Clinton. Um, how do you pronounce Debbie Swasherman Schultz? What's this lady's name? Yeah, let's go with Walterman Schultz. Walterman Schultz, all right. She was a Clinton, in, in 2008, she was one of Hillary Clinton's political advisors helping her in the primary race against Obama. Clinton lost, then Swasherman Schultz becomes the DNC, head of the DNC chair coincidence oh and then the lady is sitting there planting emails and trying to take bernie out there was no doubt that the democratic party decided clinton was going to be their their person so the it it's really so how does that happen i mean we know what we're all in agreement that shiesty things happened and clinton was their chosen representative but why clinton like literally any other of their major national figures could have done better well don't be too hard on yourself, first of all, about the Republican Party digging their own grave, because they did. The party of Reagan's dead. The Cold War coalition among social conservatives 
foreign policy hawks and free market libertarians. That's done. The Republican Party is something different now. But the Democrats um, have always been more suspicious of their base because the Democratic Party actually exists between elections, unlike the Republican Party, which just kind of disappears between um, actual voting. You know, you have unions, you have um, you have the um, various ethnic minorities. You have um, traditional the blue collar academia. You have right. So you right. you have these um, institutional groupings um, that form the Democratic Party coalition, and oftentimes it's like herding cats. Um, and the Democrats learned their lesson in 1968 when they had a very chaotic convention in Chicago. That's why you have superdelegates. That's why you have a lot more top-down party control. Um, but this year, the top-down party control um, decided to hold a coronation in, as I said, a regicidal year. That wasn't a good political <laughs> calculation. Yeah. But Are they all totally, and I'm talking about both parties, are they totally out of touch with the internet? Like, has the internet not gotten to political elites in this country? Because <laughs> it's like, I saw this coming, you saw this coming. Well, you kind of probably had well, a... Well, we didn't see Trump winning. I, I, I think Daniel did. But would it be fair to say that you and I... I'm talking about, like, the anger and right. the internet and just people, like, being... Their access to information and, what, and how we digest it. Like, I, throughout the campaign, when you were looking at Hillary Clinton, you were not, like this is my girl, she's going to be great. You were like, she's not him, right? <laughs> well, and, that, and that's why the Democrats dug their own grave because they, they dropped... I think ultimately my opinion is I think the reason Trump won is because he was authentic, okay? And I think voters want authenticity. They want to see someone get up there with some passion, some charisma, and, and some honesty, whether he's saying something awful or not, but something that they actually believe he thinks is true, and that inspires people. And I think that's why he won, because in the primaries, he's running against all these establishment individuals, and Trump was the most authentic. I'm not agreeing with what he said, but what I am saying is, at least he thought he was being honest, whether he was lying or not. But he's calling these guys I think corrupt. That's it. <laughs> right. He's calling these guys corrupt. He's calling them establishment. No one's looking out for you guys. He he says things how they are. And I think that people got a sense of authenticity. And I think he thinks he's authentic too. And so I think ultimately that's why he won. Now, Clinton, you couldn't get more un authentic authentic authentic. Um, that I've never seen a good speech for her. Her when she speaks, like charisma for her is just like raising her cadence, like yelling. Basically, she has no charisma. She she's always wearing a mask, um, and I think that that was a big issue. And and then kind of going back to how the Democrats dug their own grave was, I don't know. To me, authenticity and um, having some sort of kind of principles or values seem to kind of run hand in hand. So Trump had a, had some principles and values he was pushing, and he was authentic, and he was honest about those things, right? Bernie Sanders, same thing. Authentic, had principles and values, and was pushing that. So if you're a liberal like me and you see Bernie, I see a guy who's being honest with me, who's authentic, he's got a little bit of charisma, and he's got some kind of principles that I agree with. And I think that's why Sanders inspired so many people. Same thing on the Trump camp. Well, Clinton and the DNC killed Bernie's campaign. 
we bring in this lady, you know, uh, who's got all these problems and who's a liar and everyone knows it, and then Trump crushes her. Well, there are two features, I think, of the Democratic Party establishment that didn't help. The first is that um, Democrats have increasingly tended to concentrate in urban centers, mm -hmm. um, and this creates an echo chamber effect where, because everyone around you basically has the same sort of liberal ideas, it's, it becomes difficult to conceptualize um, any alternative to that. Um, the second problem, which reinforces that, um, you know, Trump ran as the politically incorrect candidate. And it wasn't just a matter of authenticity, but it was a matter of breaking these restrictions, some of them probably in place for very good, decent reasons, but nevertheless, he breaches them. And people see that as a more honest form of communication. Um, if you look at the campus left now, both of those problems tend to reinforce each other. The demand to have safe spaces tends to create uh, a situation where people can't even conceive that there is an opposition to their ideas. And that, in the end, leaves you very weak when it comes to combating those um, ideas. The second problem that it does, however, is it creates these language codes um, that ultimately, I think, do less to actually help people than to create sort of these circular firing squads mm -hmm. where people are attacking other people in order to, to find out who's the, who's the best victim in the group. Yeah, I always find it juicily ironic as well when they call uh, Mr. Trump thin-skinned <laughs> from the ju social justice warrior camp. It's like, do you guys not own mirrors? You're not seeing this? Right, right, right. And so I think that going forward, really what the left should be doing after taking stock of why they lost this election is thinking about um, removing their leadership. That's really where they should be focusing. But it, it looks like they're going to go back to, as I said, the uh, circular firing squad. And it's why a lot of leftist movements that might have uh, taken root in the country, Occupy Wall Street being the uh, most prominent example, really eventually just petered out because it's not good enough to have a common enemy. You actually have to eventually organize around something positive and you have to be willing to um, take an oppositional stance, which means thinking through how your political opponents think. Didn't you just write the story of why his presidency will fail to organize oneself around something positive? They organize themselves around anger. Well, but they also organize themselves around trade protectionism. Um, they organize themselves around limiting immigration. Those are controversial policies, but they're concrete proposals that people can argue about. Um, we shouldn't have a buffoon in the White House doesn't get you very far as a political platform. Fair enough. And that does take us to what's the point of the current protests? Like There are protests everywhere, and I'm glad people are finally active. But I, my, my personal opinion is I think that they're ridiculous. Um, yeah, you should have protested on November 8th when you cast your ballot. And I think as far as like the country healing and uh, moving forward, I, I, I want the best for the 
president-elect. I hope he does a really good job. This is a chance for the Repu- let's see what what the Republicans really believe. Let's see how much yeah. of what they opposed on Obama was just was just bluffing. Um, it is true. They have no excuses left. They have none. They it's, have full control, so if they can't get it done, they only have themselves to blame. Right, so let's see what they can do. I, I don't agree with the protests. I think that um, um, if if Donald Trump ever is, is you know breaking, violating the Constitution or trying to break the law, I think that's the time to protest, but sure. I don't think it's good for anyone right now. I'll say that I, I do like seeing people protest more because I feel like that was an activity that kind of died in the 80s into the 90s and mostly the knots as well. And although it's it has no direction yet, it has the potential to find direction and organize around itself, hopefully around something positive, something other than, well, we don't like that guy. He wasn't our guy. So hopefully some sort of momentum comes out of it, but as to what it might be, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, ultimately what the protest is... Like in a democracy, we have a set of rules that we all play play by. And imagine what liberals would be saying if when Clinton won, all the redneck conservatives were running around shooting their guns and, you know, chugging Bud Lights and, sure. holding, and you know, um, occupying federal lands in Utah and Nevada. We would be condemning that, you know, to the day's end. So I... I think it's just hypocritical, right, for mm-hmm. for us to be to be to be acting that way. He did win, and if and when he breaks the law moving forward, then you initiate your protest. So. The future of politics, at least in the near term, is going to favor more disruptive campaigns. It's just easier to uh, organize a disruptive movement than it is to actually consolidate any sort of centralized control. Trump's candidacy is an example of that. Um, But as for whether these particular protests will work, I'm skeptical of that because unlike the Tea Party movement, which began with defenestrating the Republican leadership and then moved on to replacing it with the candidates that they wanted, so far Democrats um, have played kid kid gloves with their own leadership. Yeah. Um, They see their own leadership as victims. Right. And I don't think that it's yet sunk in the magnitude of the incompetence and the scale of the loss. Once I think that sets in, I think you might see uh, a more effective uh, attempt to fight back. And this is a recurring feature in American politics. Usually the losing side in a realignment doubles down on their policies and then realizes maybe they need to adjust to the new political reality. There's something I wanted to talk about about kind of the nature of politics, Uh, not so much politics, but uh, the voting electorate and um, the nature that social media and the internet plays in that. And then also associate the ideas of like lies and ignorance that that come from the internet. Um, uh, Bill Maher a week ago interviewed um, President Obama at the White House and they had about an hour-long interview. It was really interesting. I thought the most interesting part, though, was, was Mar asked President Obama, what do you think is the most kind of pressing concern, like, in America today? And he asked that, and I would have thought, you know, climate change or terrorism or, you know, something that's, like, killing people. Mm-hmm. And what he said is the way people access information he believed was the most pressing issue today. And then he gave an example, um, and, and, and obviously that 
that answer directly tied in with what he was seeing with what was going on with with the the race between Trump and Clinton at that point. He alluded, you know, a, a guy in his mother's basement sitting in his underwear. This was kind of him speaking. Can sit and write all these hit pieces and put out a bunch of false information, put it on social media. It's it's shared, it's retweeted, and then you just have mass voters, right, going out and voting people in based off of lies. And then we already know, like, with our educational system and people aren't reading, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is, that's, for the, the fact that he said that as, like, the most important thing that we're facing is really alarming because ultimately a democracy is only as good as the voter, right? So I'm um, just curious what you guys think. So did he say that in the context of the campaign or post-election? He said that in the context of, no, um, but he said that in the context, Mars' question was, what do you, what's the most pressing issue that right. America faces? Uh-huh. So neither, I guess, post-election. But what I'm saying is, regard, if his answer is how Americans are educating themselves, yeah. I mean, it makes a difference when he said that. If it happened oh, during yeah, the sorry, campaign, sorry, 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 yeah. then it's kind of a wink and the nod to, hey, you, the smart people should be voting a certain way because he has come out you know quite strongly in favor of Hillary Clinton and yeah, telling yeah. people that a vote for a third party is a vote for Donald Trump and other what right. I consider to be horrifying right, statements right, right. from the you know yeah he said she, that during the campaign yeah so I would take it with a grain of salt I don't know if I can given how uh, given given the results I'm not so sure that I mean, Clinton was a hawk, but I still have some concerns with Trump. I mean, the fact that, like, fact-checking websites, Trump lied. Something like 79% of his statements in the debates were lies. Clinton was under 30%. I think Sanders actually, Sanders was 31% of his statements were either, like, on on fire false or false. Clinton was 29%. And Donald Trump was 75%. So I, I do understand, take that with a grain of salt, but mm, I think we all know being on Facebook and seeing all the stuff that circulates in it, that how it has an effect on people. So, Well, the general point is, is true that Donald Trump is a little more loose with the truth than my, uh, we might expect. I would qualify that, though, by saying that PolitiFact occasionally will take this uh, exact same statement that Bernie Sanders made, and when Donald Trump makes it, say that it's completely false and that it's completely true, or mostly true when um, Bernie Sanders says it. The most prominent example of that was when um, Trump talked about the rates of unemployment and basically used the same um, method of adjusting the figures to make them look worse Mm -hmm. than Sanders had. PolitiFact said that that was mostly true in Sanders' case. uh, mostly false in Trump's case. So there, I mean, there's, there, there's dishonesty and then there's dishonesty. I think one of the problems with the media is that throughout the campaign, they've tended to take Trump literally, but not take him seriously, whereas his supporters tend to take him seriously, but not always necessarily literally. That's so... I, re- I read that somewhere. Where did you steal that from? I stole that from Ms. Coulter. Okay. Oh, did you... That's so. That's something else I wanted to talk about too. Is Clinton clearly had the media on her side during the primary, and she obviously did during the, the general election. I watched. I was watching CNN on the the election night, 
And I could tell the analysts just getting more and more morose as like they realized <laughs> Trump was doing better to the point where they were they were kind of like freaking out. Like you could tell they did not. When he won Ohio, I looked and looked at my computer and the map and the Ohio was red and I was like <laughs> Oh shit. It happened. It's and all those other ones were undecided, but that was it. I was like, no, that right. But but that 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 notion, you know, that this year is the first year that prominent newspapers actually came out and endorsed Hillary. New York Times endorsed Hillary Clinton. I think that was unprecedented. Um, I know there were a few papers that did that had never endorsed a candidate before. Uh, but but that is also kind of a danger for democracy too. Mm-hmm. Fact, well, when was the really last time that the fourth estate did its job properly? I mean, are we really surprised that they're doing it even worse now? <laughs> But, right, at the end of the day, though, it, the, the backfiring of that is Breitbart News and all of the all-wing mm-hmm. conservative sources, yeah. and then the conspiracy theories and all of these different things that come out. And it, if, I'm just curious, it seems like if, if President Obama is saying one of the most important phase, issues facing our country is how we access information. Because it's very important. Mm-hmm. Like, is climate change real or not? Like, how big of an issue is immigration? Like, people need to know the facts. Because I think at the end of the day, most people most people across America, my whole family voted for Trump. But if I sit down and talk talk with them about a couple things, mm-hmm. we, we agree on most things. We really sure. do, if you, if you hash things out. But if the media is very liberal, which my father has said that for years, I'm always like, ah, I don't know what you're talking about, right? I just, nah, like, the, the New York Times is objective, but if they are if they really have kind of more of a liberal bias, then you have that backfire from the, the crazy conservative stuff, and it just creates an atmosphere of, of just falsity, and no one really knows what's going on. Sure. Well, the echo chambers tend to reinforce each other because there's also a conservative echo chamber. Um, what I think happens in a lot of cases is if you were living in Pennsylvania and you saw down your neighborhood Trump signs everywhere and the media is reporting that there's no chance that Trump's going to take Pennsylvania, that dissonance between what you're observing in reality and what the media is reporting doesn't cause you to adjust your view about what's in front of your eyes. It causes you to adjust your view about the trustworthiness of the media. One of the most interesting um, sort of points of data that I've seen has been Google's project tracking YouTube views, um, Clinton versus Trump. And one of the noticeable trends is that in October, in Ohio and Pennsylvania, people just stopped watching Clinton ads. They only started watching Trump. If you look at the color coding, it goes completely red. And there's a point at which they've decided the media is gaslighting me. I'm just not going to listen anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's one of the one of the reasons um, for why the press didn't get it right on this election, but also for why a lot of people no longer decided to listen to the press. And I guess grouped in. I mean, were the the polls all skewed? I mean, now here's this, my issue with what's, polls. What's up with the poll? Have you ever been polled? I have. You have. Yeah. Where? I was polled uh, once, um, it was about a month ago. Okay, and uh, they call, got, how did they contact you? I got a phone call from like Pennsylvania and they just asked me, they, they didn't ask me specific questions on the candidates, but more of like, they were wanting to know like, how satisfied are you with, 
do you feel like like the economy's gotten better or worse? Just like general questions about okay. like the state of the country. Interesting. Yeah. You're the only person I, I know A to get that phone call and B to not hang up immediately. <laughs> well I think I think most of that's probably happening in battleground states. Well yeah. they're trying to get a sense of sure kind of sentiment, so we're not gonna get So it. why did they call you? Like do you have a Pennsylvania area no. code? I've I've no clue. I don't okay. know. I don't know. No, I just got a phone call. And All right. Have you ever been polled? I was polled once in 2004 because the... No one's polling me. What's up with that? Because <laughs> they know you're extreme third wing. <laughs> Which was strange because I couldn't even vote in that election. Right. But I decided to answer their questions anyway. Um, the, I, I think the reason for that was that Kerry and Bush were actually drawing pretty close yeah. in Hawaii. And we had just elected a Republican governor which had nothing to do with the National Republican Party, but I mm, guess pollsters just assumed. So, but why did you why did you ask about polls? Um, well, I, brought, I, I brought up the polling. Yeah, I just think that polls are nuts, and like I thought that they were only polling people who still had landlines, so of course they're going to be off. But apparently, that's just a rumor. <laughs> they're talking to David. <laughs> but, I would have. Um, I would be shocked if the polling was only landlines. That'd be very surprising because surely the pollsters would know. Okay, these are not going to be accurate. We can't. Yeah, but we we're talking about the same people who have been doing the same work since whenever, and they're getting it wrong at all levels of you know politics. So right. why would the pollsters be better? And and they've been off three to five points in every election cycle. It just happens to be off in the favor of person who actually ends up winning. Well, five. I've seen the opposite. Right. The the trickiest thing in polling because all pollsters are trying to do is model what they think the electorate will look like mm-hmm. on election day or at least who's going to be voting. Um, that's the trick though, right? If you don't have an accurate model of who's going to actually turn out, then your poll is essentially garbage. And if you take a bunch of polls that have, if you assume that they will eventually converge to what the model will be, then you can average them. But if People are making wildly different guesses about what the electorate will be. And if you're in a year in which past political certainties no longer hold, then your polling models aren't going to work. Um, one of the better polls that I saw was the um, USC, Los Angeles Times USC poll. They had Trump ahead by six points, I think, going uh, into the final week of the election. But the reason why I think that that was a a good poll is because they do a panel poll. So you're actually measuring attitudinal changes in whatever initial sample you had. Whereas a lot of other polls, you don't know if the changes that you're seeing are because you have a different sample. Mm. Um, And there were a lot of interesting findings from that poll. Um, I think the most interesting one is that people who made under 35000 were consistently for Hillary Clinton. Trump at no point ever caught up with them. Um, people who made between 35000 and 75000 Trump had a lead. Clinton never could reach it. The movement in the polls was almost entirely with people who made over 75000 And I think that even though there's been a lot of focus on working class voters who turned out more, the essential 
anxiety that Trump is appealing to is a middle-class insecurity about downward social mobility. Um, they don't see a chance of joining the upper class or even the upper middle class, and they're worried about uh, falling into the underclass. Hmm. So polls can tell you some good things, but you have to be able to look at their model mm -hmm. and understand what assumptions they're making about the electorate in order to decide whether it's a good poll or not. Hmm. So I have a final question, and it goes to something we uh, touched upon earlier but didn't really discuss, and that's uh, he won, uh, Trump won the Electoral College, but it seems more likely than not that uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. So uh, setting aside how you feel about politics either way, uh, the Electoral College as an institution, antiquated or not, do we get rid of it? What should replace it? I think it's, it's a good thing for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it ensures that the contest really is nationwide. If we had a popular, strictly by the popular vote, I think we'd see more candidates and we'd see more regional candidates. So we'd see more candidates because people would know that they could spoil the election by drawing um, a, a number of voters. But we'd also see more regional candidates because it's much easier to get higher turnout in the South than it is to campaign nationally and win in 51 different electoral contests. The second thing that advantage of the Electoral College is that we actually don't litigate that much over votes afterwards. Um, if every single vote eventually mattered, there would be... <laughs> That's there such would a crazy thing to say. <laughs> a, there would be a nationwide contest to fight over the validity of all those votes if we only went by the numbers. Um, legal challenges will, under, an, under the Electoral College, be restricted to cases like Florida where it's close in one state and you're not fighting over, well, what was the vote like in California? What was the vote like in Michigan? Um, you know, or, you know, what was the vote like in Texas? Um, and so I think those are two advantages of the Electoral College, that it forces you to actually have a nationwide contest and that after the vote occurs, people accept the result and they don't litigate over it. Your response? I, honestly, um, I mean, my view, of, I, don't, I, don't, I'm not, I can't speak to the Electoral College like, like my friend Daniel can. Um, you can try. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> can also edit some of this out. Um, I, from what I've read is that the Electoral College is established to protect fringe candidates from coming in and kind of sweeping across and um, basically um, igniting a fervor in Americans and, and coming to power. Yeah, tell me if not. Coming to power. Sounds familiar. That, that basically um, would not be good for the republic. Now, what just happened, right? Donald Trump kind of did that. He lost the popular, won the Electoral College. Um, it seems like logically, though, that, that that makes sense to have an electoral college because, one, it it gives an even playing field. I don't think it would be fair not to have one because then California and New York would pretty much have 
those two states would call every election. I think it would just exacerbate right. the problems that we already have. Because for whatever reason in urban... You don't think there's a southern coalition from Texas to Florida that would have just as many popular votes? Because you're assuming the electoral college logic, which is winner take all. Whereas, you know, Hillary Clinton, or the Democrat tends to win New York and California, but not by a landslide. It's probably around 60-40. If you start counting every vote instead of only the 60%, then it's actually a much closer contest. No, I think generally, I, th I think the electorate ha across the nation has, has changed. I think generally we, we have more Democrats in, in the country than Republicans. Now, whether they all come out and vote is a, is a different question. But I think it's pretty obvious that um, for different number of different reasons, well, the last two times where a Republican has won, he won via electorate co the electorate college, but he didn't win the popular vote, right? Bush versus Gore, and then now with uh, Trump and Clinton. Well, Bush against Kerry, he won both. Okay, did he? Okay. But generally, from, from what I've read, and it sounds like, Daniel, you agree, that there's more Democrats in the country than Republicans, right? Yeah. And the other thing, too, I guess the point I was trying to make was, that's just, that, that's how it works. And so I think with that in electorate college, you would have a, a lot of states that basically would lose like kind of all of their power in deciding. And, and why should smaller states have more power? Or why should they have disparate power to elect over, you know, because people are people, right? One man will vote or one person will vote. I don't think they have desperate power because it, the population um, is, there's a correlation between the, the population and the number of electorate votes. Ultimately, from what I've heard, again, I, like I said, I don't, don't know a lot about it, but it sounds like it's a way of keeping in check um, uh, certain types of individuals from, from taking the election that, that, that shouldn't take it. Is it true, though, that there's a petition going around, a change.org petition, basically petitioning President Obama to say, Please have the elect the electoral college are actually individuals. It sounds mm -hmm. like, and they're asking him to tell the electoral college or encourage the electoral college to to not vote in Trump for president. Um, I think that's has that happened in history before. Well, before that, I'll just add one more advantage about the okay. electoral college, yeah. which is that when you're campaigning, for the most part, you have to if you're campaigning individually for. Hillary Clinton, let's say, or for Donald Trump, you have to appeal to your own political community, right? To your neighbors who vote and pay taxes and share all the other things about the state with you. You can't appeal to like, you obviously have to work in coalition with other states. Well, we but, have the internet, man. But You're, you're talking about some 1980s shit. <laughs> well, no, but, but ultimately you are campaigning to the people who you share much more than you do with other Americans. I don't agree with that premise. I think you, if you want to talk to your neighbor, you go outside, you talk to your neighbor. If you want to talk to someone living in Alaska, you get online and you go to some Reddit forum like Alaska politics and you start talking to those people. Yeah. And I think both forms of communication are perfectly valid. Oh no, they're, they're both perfectly valid, but people in Alaska share more as Alaskans. That's a subjective decision that you're making no if if you if you commit a in terms of national politics 
If no, I'm saying in terms of political life. Right, but there's a very big difference between who we want to be the national leader who has to take in all of our concerns versus all the state offices. Right, but I think that part of that political conversation is should ultimately appeal to people who are near and proximate to you. Um, and I, I tend to think that politics ultimately has to be done at the the neighborhood level at the local level first. Well, that's a famous saying, right? Before All you, politics are local. Right. I disagree with it. <laughs> so, so, But I'm saying that that's, that's another argument in favor. Okay. As for telling the Electoral College to overturn it, I think it's a waste of time. Um, I would agree. For, for one thing, the House of Representatives will certify the vote. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to give the election to Hillary Clinton. For another thing, there's no reason why, say, um, electors in Pennsylvania should decide to ignore the vote of their own state just because more people in Los Angeles, let's say, turned out to vote. Um, yeah, and maybe I didn't articulate it well earlier, but I think ultimately, like, if you abolish the electorate college, it would exacerbate the problem you're seeing as far as, like, the white, for example, right now, like, the white, lower middle income disenfranchised in like the heartland right mm-hmm. they lose these local communities do have needs and they need to be represented by the mm-hmm. federal government and by the president and so I think the electoral college helps preserve that because it gives them a little bit more of a voting power in order to express that I think it would also alienate a lot of people from the result right if you feel like there's a mass of millions of people who are going to be determining the result it's a lot easier to feel that your one vote won't count Whereas, you know, yes, Hawaii is safely blue, but that seems like a scale at which you could conceivably try to convince other people to to change it. I feel like it cuts both ways, though, because if you live in this state and you're like, well, my vote doesn't count anyway because it's always going to go blue, so I'm not going to even vote today. And the real issue is that, not that you're not going to affect the national politics, is that by you not voting, you're also not voting for all the local offices that also are on that same ballot and when that becomes skewed i mean all politics are local so when people are not participating in the local uh, elections and not doing so meaningfully either uh that's how you get a trickle up situation where (laughs) you're you know already disenfranchised nationally and now you've kind of taken yourself out of the local as well yeah i mean i think the the reminder for that to voters is that states do change. There was a time when California was safely a Republican state. There was a time when Texas was safely Democratic. Mm. Um, those things will do change. And so just because your state feels like it's safely in one column or the other doesn't mean that you should give up on political organization or participation if you want to change that. Mm. I wanted, one more issue I was kind of curious about that I wanted to touch on was it seems like there's a global trend towards nationalism, right? And I guess post-World War II, we entered into a period where we tried to more of a liberal kind of international order. The UN was established, NATO, and the idea was that for a couple of different reasons, but one was I think ultimately to prevent world wars, right? Mm-hmm. And if we could have kind of international order, those things could be prevented. And then with Brexit, the Philippine uh, president who was elected, Donald Trump, What's happening on an international stage? Why are we, why is the 
kind of international framework kind of fracturing a little mm, bit. I feel like it's a pendulum that pitch. swings more slowly than at the national level. So we go back and forth, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. And unfortunately, I feel like our pendulum is swinging wildly as opposed to mildly. I feel like the international pendulum is a little more slow, slower, and uh, milder. So it's swinging, and yeah, we're in for a rough decade or three uh, in terms of nationalism. And, you know, there's a lot of dangerous things that come with nationalism. But ultimately, there will be swing back, and it'll swing back again. And that's just the way of the world. Right. My view, and then I'd be interested to hear, is I wonder if it has more to do with, with national security and with kind of resources, resource deprivation. For example, like the Syrian civil war essentially was, was caused by a drought. The, the Syrian civil war came because there was a massive drought in Syria, right? Um, oh, I don't think that's necessarily the story everyone knows. I think if anyone is thinking, the average American who knows a bit about international politics, I would have said, oh, it was the um, Arab Spring and the protests that accompanied that. But you're saying there was a massive drought, so. Right. Well, do, do inform. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll try. I'll give you my thesis and then I'll give you the details. But what, I, I'm, what I'm wondering is if the, the nationalism starting to take place is because countries are feeling pressures, like specifically resource pressure, uh, resources and goods in order to just supply kind of basic needs for their population. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm starting to wonder why. Now, what, why do I think that? Part of the reason why the Brexit movement occurred was because of fear and concerns about immigration in Europe and in the UK. Um, where are those immigrants coming from? They're coming from Syria, war-torn places in the Middle East. Why are there so many um, immigrants coming out of Syria? It was because of a civil war. What caused the civil war in Syria? Now, you're going to get a lot of different theories. Thomas Friedman wrote about this. I wrote a paper in law school about this. but. Friedman wrote about this extensively from like 2004 to 2008. Basically he said, before the Syrian civil war broke out, there was a really extensive drought in Syria. Uh, to the point, it was three, four, five years long, about one to two million men, unemployed agricultural workers, didn't have any more jobs in the agricultural regions of Syria, so they moved into the, the city center, into Damascus. Um, um, in Aleppo, uh, but Assad didn't do a very good job at giving these people employment opportunities. So unrest occurred, and then a civil war broke out. ISIS comes in, we know the story, and now you have all these people flooding into to Europe. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of a grand theory, but what when you think about Europe, their, their major concern is immigration from the Middle East. Well, what's happening in the Middle East? Well, we, I believe that in Syria, it was the drought ultimately that caused all the civil unrest, that caused the civil war, that caused the immigration. So I'm wondering if this trend back to nationalism is there's a theory, I don't know who wrote the paper, but it's basically called the walled fortress scenario. Um, I was reading a few years ago, there's kind of security analysts who are looking at different, like kind of the world, the state of the world today and the way the world can head. And one was called the walled fortress scenario, where basically climate change, resource deprivation, international order breaks up, countries will start walling themselves in and protecting themselves, trying to just, 
and basically letting kind of the masses die off and trying to preserve their own populations. Just kind of curious um, if there's any validity to that or what you guys think. Well, I think nationalism is a form of human loyalty. It's a form of love. And like any type of love, it's liable to excesses and perversions. Um, but it does, I think, fulfill a human need to um, associate with a sort of love of one's own, right? Because the place that you're born into, um, or if you immigrate, the place to which you naturalize, um, provides a lot of things for you, right? It provides you with a language, for example. It provides you with customs and culture. And so people do feel, I think, a legitimate need to be anchored and to have um, that anchor expressed in a particular form, not necessarily a, a general form, right? I love women is different from I love Sylvia. And in the same way, I love humanity is different from I love America. Um, so nationalism, I don't think necessarily has to be a bad trend. And the history of nationalism depends upon the history of that country. If you are an Indian nationalist, that is quite different from being a German nationalist. Right, but, um, but I think the question was why today is there, like, progressives in general want to see more of kind of, they want to see global order, they want to see international law, they want to see more trade, less war, less nationalism. And why are we reverting back to national? It seems like something's fracturing. My, my, my like question like is, what's fracturing, like right, and that kind of gets back to kind of what I was saying with like Syria and the draft, etc. What's kind of fracturing on the international level? I don't think it's just. A, I, I don't believe it's a fervor. People are like, "Oh, I want to be more nationalistic." I think there's something going on with kind of the global economy. It's putting pressure and it's kind of forcing countries. It's hurting labor. It's hurting different individuals, working class people, and then they're they're going reverting back to nationalism. Well, I mean, globalization is a historical process that has been going on at least since 1492, and so when we say that there's a trend towards nationalism, that's true in some parts of the world. Um, but, you know, the, the height of nationalism in somewhere like Africa was probably, you know, in the 1950s, 1960s, as um, the continent decolonized. Um, the nationalism that most people are talking about here is a, a rise of nationalism in Europe. Um, and the reasons for that, I think, have to do with the failure of the European Union. The European Union ultimately was a, a problem to contain a reunified and rising Germany. Um, Germany, when it unifies, tends to unify quite well. It has an economy that um, leaves its neighbors in the dust. It has a population. Uh, it's the largest country in Europe, uh, second largest if you include Russia. And those tend to be quite destabilizing. But the European Union could hold as long as there was a sense of common prosperity. But as soon as you had scarcity, which was brought in by the um, collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008 and the resultant global financial crisis, um, suddenly you didn't have that sense of common purpose. The unemployment rates in Germany are something like 4 or 5%. Mm -hmm. In Southern Europe, they're seeing unemployment levels that have not occurred since the Great Depression. Um, the Germans have decided they had a choice. They could either um, 
take on those losses, or they could impose austerity measures. They thought about it for a few moments, and they decided austerity for you guys. You can't hold together um, any sort of federation if you don't have that sense of common purpose. In the United States, as much as we may not like people in other states, ultimately, we are all in this republic together. Um, that sense of common purpose is not shared in Europe. It was an alliance for the most part of convenience, and the money's run out. Hmm. And that, that is a very, <laughs> that's a very dangerous situation because once Europe returns to its old national divisions, yeah. we had two world wars over that. I think Europe is probably one of the tinderboxes people are not really taking as seriously as they should, right? It's always, what is China doing in the South Chinese Sea? What is Russia doing in the Baltics? No one's ever like, what are those Frenchmen up to, right? <laughs> like, uh, there's huge potential for dangerous outcomes in the next couple of years. In Europe? In Europe. And, is, is, and this is not Russian-related? Well... It's all related, yeah. Well, I mean, but I'm saying in terms of the Brexit being the first piece of the sandcastle to get washed away, and suddenly you have a disintegrated European Union. You know, even though that's not, you know, gonna ruin the party for America, and in, in a sense, it really will because they're the biggest economy in the world, and they're buying a lot of our stuff. And once that, you know the economic scarcity that caused them to disintegrate starts filtering its way over the Atlantic and to the rest of the world, then yes, your kind of worst case scenario starts to come true. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's worth remembering that um, both world wars started with a minor territorial dispute in Eastern Europe that quickly spiraled out of control. And on that happy note, we've done two and a half hours, gentlemen. Awesome talking to you. Thank yes. you so much. Yep. Appreciate David, it. Always a pleasure. Yep. Thanks. And thanks for you who made it this far. Thank you. <laughs> and good night. <laughs> <laughs>